we open up the Bible in Luke chapter 8, we are encountering Jesus. Jesus is on his journey. He is traveling south from the area of Capernaum where he has been ministering. He's gotten into a boat. He's crossed the uh, Galilean Sea, the Sea of Galilee. And he is now landed in the area called the Decapolis. This is a Greek area, an area settled by um, the Greeks many uh, years uh, before. And uh, there's a ring of ten cities, hence Decapolis. And there's a lot of action going on here. And he has an encounter a very significant encounter with one man that has something to teach us, I believe, this morning. So listen as I read from the scriptures. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And then turning over to the 10th chapter of John's gospel, We read these famous words of Jesus, John chapter 10, at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I asked you to take your finger and point to yourself, where would you be pointing? Most of us, I imagine, would not be pointing at our heads. That's interesting, isn't it? Because from our heads seems to flow so much of our lives. We're so often caught up in the head, in the head games of life. But in spite of the great importance of good thinking, and we need it, we instinctively know that what is most essential about us is not our intellect, 
We almost never say to somebody we love, I give you all my brain, honey. Though we often give them a piece of our mind, uh, don't we? I've never heard anybody say as they devoted themselves to a great cause, I hereby dedicate my full bladder to this cause. Or I pledge to thee my lungs. No, when we're talking about that aspect of ourselves that is most central to who we are, to what we have to really bring to life, we tend to speak of what's here, don't we? We speak of the heart. Now the heart, the heart we're speaking of does not mean our myocardial muscle, though that amazing pump which drives our physical lives makes a fine analogy for that deeper aspect of our being that we do mean. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it is talking about, in a sense, the spiritual pump at the center of ourselves. It's talking about that that place of origin, of motivation, of orientation, of drive that is essential to our living life. As I said last week, your heart is not your feelings as much as it's your fundamental spirit. It is your will. In fact, the Bible uses the words heart, will, and spirit interchangeably. It is this heart that determines what feelings and what thoughts that you will entertain or reject in the great donut line of life, as I said last week. It's the set of core convictions and motivations that determine whether you're even listening to me right now or whether your heart is elsewhere, pointed elsewhere. As Andy Stanley writes, our heart seeps into every conversation. It dictates every relationship. We live, parent, lead, relate, romance, confront, react, respond, instruct, manage, problem solve, and love from the heart. Our hearts have the potential to exaggerate our sensitivities and our insensitivities. Our hearts impact the intensity of our communication. Every arena of life intersects with what's going on in our hearts. Everything passes through it on its way to wherever else it is going. Everything. Not surprisingly, then, your heart is the thing about you that is of most concern to God. Because it is your heart that determines whether you truly receive and respond to God as King David did, we saw that last week, or whether you just pay lip service to God and in reality turn away from him as the Pharisees did. And we saw that last week as well. God intended our hearts to be so in sync with his good heart that everything good would flow from that. That your life and your relationships, mine, would be filled with Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of these other aspects that are the fruit of His Spirit, which is to say that are the fruit of God's heart, of God's will. God wants your heart so 
in rhythm with his, so healthy and strong that your life is not only full of fruit like this for you in these ways, but that you can become an even more creative force to influence the relationships and the environments around us. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how much creative, healthy influence is needed today. This is why the Bible says, above all else, whatever else you're doing in life, uh, put this on top. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the pump. It's the wellspring of your life. What's in here is what's going to move out there. Guard your heart. But even that last statement carries an assumption, doesn't it? Buried in there. What is it? It is that there's something to be guarded against. Our minds may run immediately to all of those distractions we need to guard against. It may run to all the clutter. We may think of all the stress and demands, the poor priorities, any one of a number of other things that seem to endanger our heart. But the Bible, in addition to being concerned with these things, is even more concerned with something else. The Bible is extremely provocative, in fact, on this subject, somewhat disturbing, I think, in light of the way we look at life today. The Bible says... That there is not just something, but someone who, along with God, is after your heart. The Apostle Peter writes toward the end of his earthly journey these words. Be self-controlled and alert, he says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's thirsty for blood, is what he's saying. And then the Apostle James, characterizing the chief struggle of the Christian life, says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and purify your hearts. The Apostle Paul is similarly emphatic when he writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, escape the trap of the devil who takes people captive to do his will, which is to say, to do his heart. I tell you, says Paul, do not give the devil even a foothold in your life. Don't give him a crack to get into. Take your stand against the devil's schemes, writes Paul, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Boy, do I need reminding about this. Because I look around and I think my chief problems are these people around me. Right? We worry about this. We worry about all the people that are hassling us, that are challenging us, that are physically maybe even threatening us. And who of all people knew about that? Paul had been thrown in prison. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten up. He had been accosted on the street. He had been persecuted in every conceivable way by people. But Paul says, our, our struggle, friends, is not against flesh and blood. It's, it's not our primary problem. No, our struggle is against the things that are affecting that flesh and blood. 
that are moving in the midst of that flesh and blood. I tell you, says Paul, a well-educated man, I tell you that our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, meaning the invisible realms. And then Luke, the writer of both the Gospel and the book of Acts, summarizes the focus of the ministry of Jesus in these terms. You know what has happened throughout Judea, he writes, beginning in Galilee, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. How God anointed Jesus with the Holy Heart. And with power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Are you getting the picture? What do you make of this? In his book, Waking the Dead, John Eldridge contends that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is basically the tale of a great battle for the character and the future of the human heart. A battle that, as the cover quotation on the bulletin today suggests, must be taken very seriously. Our secular minds, of course, revolt at this whole idea. We think it cannot possibly be so. That this entire view of reality is vestigial, it's superstitious, it's a little imbalanced, it's not realistic. But strangely, in spite of that mindset, millions and millions, generations after generations, even of extremely secular people, still find themselves strangely drawn to the mythic tales told in literature and film, to the stories of the Lord of the Rings or Narnia, Cinderella or Oz, the Matrix or Harry Potter. Why? Why are our hearts drawn to these great stories? It is because they describe what our heart knows to be true. That life is more than it seems on the surface. That a great battle is underway. That we are in the midst of it and that we have a crucial role to play in this struggle, as Eldridge reminds us. On one side of this story is this wonderful advocate. This heavenly Father who knows what a a glorious power and marvelous potential lies in the human heart if it is in sync with His. God knows what an Eden this world could still be, could again be. He knows how swiftly our family lives and even our politics, how how our, our communities and businesses could be utterly transformed were our hearts beating again with His and beating for one another as He intended. And He has never stopped going after our hearts to reclaim them. On the other side of the battle is a wily attacker, the Bible says. And all of these mythical stories point towards this truth. On the other side is this attacker, a fallen angel who hates the heart of God because that heart sits on the throne and not his. 
This attacker loathes us, loathes human beings because we are beloved of the heart of God. And this attacker despises the possibility that we might somehow wake up to and expel his influence and gain the glory that he forsook. This is the tale we find ourselves in. The story of your life, writes Eldridge, is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by one who knows what you could be and fears it. So what does the attacker want? What are the specific conditions he wants to foster? He may already be fostering in our hearts so that they will lose their potential for experiencing and doing the good that is God's desire for us. What's he want? What's it look like? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring in depth, in a lot of depth in these weeks to come. This morning, I want to touch just briefly on four of the favorite lies of the attacker. Four of the the major patterns or orientations that he is seeking to sow into the human heart. And in coming weeks, we'll see how each of these toxic ideas combines and interacts to create a variety of very damaging heart conditions that that I'm afraid to say we're going to actually recognize. And we'll come to know even better. So today, I I just want to invite you to imagine this diagram of the four chambers of a physical heart. You know, the two ventricles and the two atria and the the arteries running out, as representing, just for a moment, your spiritual heart. What our enemy is out to do is to insert into these chambers four particularly toxic beliefs which, if left unaddressed, will wreck your heart and will ruin the life that flows from it. Though you may not know it because you will be surrounded by people similarly wrecked and ruined. And you'll think you're just normal until you meet somebody who is healthy, fully healthy. To put it succinctly, the one who attacks your heart wants you to believe that, one, you are on your own in life. Two, that God cannot be trusted. Three, that limits hurt you. Four, that in the end, Gravity and all the downward pulls that that word represents finally triumphs over life. And any one of these orientations, take any one of them just on its own, it can be very damaging. But when they start to build up and circulate and collaborate amongst the the cumulative effect is absolutely devastating. One might even say demonically devastating. We see this wreckage in the life of this figure that we read about a moment ago in Luke chapter 8. The Bible says that for a long time, this man had not lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. He had been driven by the demon into solitary places, 
we're told. Now, this is the attacker's first stratagem, his first desire, to get human beings alone. Go back to the first story of an encounter between human beings and this attacker back in Genesis chapter 3. Where does, where does the serpent find uh, Eve? Alone. Alone. His first desire is to get us so accustomed to isolation, to loneliness, to try and destroy, if he can, even our belief that it's possible to have companionship, real companionship, to find genuine love, to establish real partnership, to discover true community. He, he wants us to become so dubious about those things that we, that we resolve that it's not possible anymore. He's thrilled when even in the midst of other people, the silent, settled orientation of our hearts is this, I'm alone. I am on my own. I have to do my life alone. It is striking, too, how deeply embedded in this man we meet in Luke 8 is the second message of the attacker. On meeting the very man who has come to be his savior, the garrison demoniac shrieks out, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Jesus has come to save him. And embedded in this cry of the demonic man is this deep conviction. God's a threat to me. God can't be trusted. He's not out after my good. He does not care. If he's looking for me, it is only to judge me. And it is the same message that Satan planted in the heart of Adam and Eve in the garden as well. You cannot trust what God has said to you. (laughs) Uh, He's keeping stuff from you. You've got to take matters into your hands. You must make your own rules. You must pursue your own gain. The heart of God does not beat for you, if he even exists, God can't be trusted. And then the third lie, again a callback to the Garden of Eden and the famous episode of the forbidden fruit. The attacker's message is that limits hurt you. Fences and boundaries, restraints are your enemy. The Bible says that many times the demon had seized the garrison man. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken out. Why was he restrained? Why do we take the car keys away from a friend who's had too much to drink? Why do we grab hold of a kid who's just going wild? Hold their, pin their arms to their side. Why do we do these things? Because we love them. Right? Because we don't want them to hurt themselves or hurt other people. But the attacker, he knows <laughs> that if he can get somebody's heart to view limitations as bad things, if he can get 
him bent on throwing off restraints and slashing at his guardians when they come too close, if he can train her heart to say, you will not set boundaries for me. You will not tell me what I cannot do. I have a right to all that I want. If he can get the heart oriented in this way, then the destruction of that person and the damaging of a lot of people in their way is assured. Just a matter of time. And by then, the person will likely be very easy prey to the fourth great lie because their lives will be experiencing all kinds of wreckage. The Bible says that when Jesus came to heal the man, I quote, the demons begged him repeatedly not to order them to go down into the abyss. Now, the abyss is a theological term. It comes, we hear about it in the book of Revelation. It is the place where the enemy, the attacker, Satan, And all of his minions are ultimately consigned. It's below hell. It's the place of endless dropping is the image that we find in the scriptures about it. Amazingly, however, Christ does not cast the demons into the abyss. Did you notice that in the story? He doesn't cast them into the abyss. They're afraid that's what's going to happen. He gives them a second chance. And he grants them permission to go into a herd of pigs instead. Be very careful next time you order bacon. The demons terror, however, at what could happen. Frankly, what would rightfully happen. What what is going to happen eventually to those who, who, who turn heart forever against God. The demon's terror at this possibility or this coming future is one of the most common orientations of a damaged heart. It is this belief that when you've fallen from grace, there is nothing and no one who can stop you from going all the way down. Well, I've messed up this much. I might as well just go all the way down. And there's this sense of inevitability about it sometimes. The marriage is this bad, the addiction is this heavy, the, just all the way down. There is this belief that gets lodged in the heart that there's no forgiveness, not really when you've been a failure. There's not a real possibility of recovery when you've reaped what you've sown. There is no future when death has its cement shoes on you. And the message really is the weight of sin and of mortality and of life's problems will eventually drop you because in the end, gravity wins. This is the worldview that evil wants to pour into the chambers of your heart and my heart till it flows out everywhere and wrecks everything. You are on your own. God cannot be trusted. Limits hurt you. And gravity is going to win. These demonic anxieties nearly destroy the garrison man. And I'm going to dare to be blunt and say that they are damaging many of us, our neighbors and a nation that bears ample evidence of having suffered a massive heart attack. Radical individualism and independence. Me, me, me. 
all on our own in terrible loneliness and alienation alongside. An inability to trust God any longer or even believe in God any longer. A sense that limits are not permissible. It's about my rights. It's about my rights. My freedom. And a cynicism (laughs) coming from so many of the communication organs of our time that just implies this sense that it's all going to go down the hill anyway. Down the hole anyway. We have become infused with the heart set. The heart set of the thief who comes with only one purpose. To steal and to kill and to destroy the most precious thing about you and everyone you meet. The heart that God himself once so wonderfully created to beat after his. That's why it is very good news that the healthy one has come to show us what God's heart looks like and what it can do. I have come, said Jesus, that you might have life and have it to the full, more abundantly. I have come as the antidote to the thief, as the answer to all that he would do in you. So how does Jesus do his work? How does he not only help us guard our hearts, but lead us into life in all of its fullness? The answer is by replacing the attacker's toxic seeds with the truths that our heart needs to be healthy. Or put it differently, by giving us a transfusion of his heart's orientation to take the place of the sin-sick blood that circulates in our hearts. And so we're going to learn a lot more about this. We're going to think about this in great detail in the weeks ahead, but I want to just set the stage by touching very briefly on four truths that it is very important that we try to absorb. First, here's the first truth. You're not on your own. You have never been on your own. Even when there were no one else around you, there has been someone there who has been closer to you than your own heartbeat. And so I just want to say to you, if you've been living in the solitary places, if you've been thinking that you just have to do life solo, If you've been afraid that nobody, if they really knew the truth, would ever really receive you, come in from the tombs. Come in. Jesus says, you have a home with me. There's a place by my side. There's a place in the family of followers for you. Come home. Secondly, You can trust your father's heart. You can trust him. 
Religious people may sometimes fail you. I wish that were not so. It just happens. Circumstances in your life may get extremely hard, but God is very good. His heart is wise. His heart is pure. He cares profoundly for your heart. Put your faith in him. He's trustworthy. Thirdly, do not believe the lie that the boundary lines and the limits that God lays out are there to hurt you. God's limits are there to help you, to find freedom from a lot of the pain that you would otherwise experience or cause. And here's the best part, particularly if you've been under heavy attack. Gravity does not get the last word in my Father's universe, says Jesus. Grace not gravity wins. God redeems sinners and renews relationships. He restores hopes and resurrects bodies. God has got great plans for the renovation of your heart and mine. Let this in. This is the truth. These are some of the simple truths that we're going to explore together in much deeper measure in the weeks ahead. And last week, I ended by asking you to do a searching heart scan. Do you remember that? To ask God to show you where there was unhealth, where, where your heart, what was coming out of you that was in, indicative of a heart problem. Well, here's, here's what I want to ask you to do this week. I want to invite you to ask God to show you which of those four truths you most need to take in. To be transfused deep into you. Which of those four truths? And then as God gives you light to see that, share your insight with somebody else. Talk about what God is showing you. Ask them to pray. For this change. And then ask them the most important question anybody will ask them this week. Ask them, how's your heart? Please pray with me. Teach us your way, O Lord. Teach us your way. You who are life abundant, life in all of its fullness, fill us, renew us, we pray. Amen.